this morning, and we are going to finish uh, chapter 17 this morning as we look at the fourth crisis in this uh, mini-series of the wilderness narrative. So the people of God are in the, the wilderness between the Red Sea and the Mount Sinai where they will receive the, the law of God and they face four crises, right? In the third crisis from last week in the beginning of chapter 17, they ran out of water again. The people are up in arms once again against Moses. They put Moses on trial. They put God on trial, testing, testing the Lord and his faithfulness, and they demand water, right? And so we've been seeing over and over, now the third time they have failed once again. And then the Lord, though, in each of the times, he shows that he can provide, and yet particularly in chapter 17, he does so in that that, that choreography in the desert for Moses to go forth to, to, um, to Horeb and strike the rock where water would come forth. And we know the, um, the, the symbolism, the picture that's being done there as the Lord goes forth, as if he is the one that's being uh, struck. You can go back and you can listen to that from last week. But the all-out idea of what's happening in the wilderness is that the Lord is testing his people. And through these struggles, and through these difficulty, he is teaching them as he is teaching us, right? We learn from 1 Corinthians chapter 10 that they have been set as an example for us to learn so that we do not walk in their wickedness, but we follow Christ who was completely obedient, right? So in following Christ, we learn to trust in the Lord, right? To put our faith in uh, uh, the Lord, right? To learn to listen to the words of God, to the word of God, right? That we do not listen to the things that are empirical or the way that we feel or the things that we see perceived around us that are coming upon us, but very much so we listen to the word of God first and foremost. That there is nothing above that, not even our own taste buds, our own stomachs, our own dehydration, but God's word, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. There should have been a hearty amen there. Every word out of the mouth of God. So in this space before God gives them the law, he is showing in his providence and his sovereignty that he is testing his people, that the only place that they can rely and look and rest, remember rest, about the Sabbath rest that was brought, right, can only rely in his grace and in his mercy and all of their needs. And now we come to this fourth crisis. And this fourth crisis is unlike the first three, and it seems to come out of nowhere. And here they are, they're still at Rephidim, and, and as they are, Israel is going to face a sudden, unprovoked attack in the desert by the tribe called the Amalekites. So let's look to chapter 17, starting in verse 8. Let's read together. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, Choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him, and he fought with Amalek. While Moses, Aaron, and Hur went to the top of the hill, whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hand grew weary. So they took a stone and put it under, under him, and he sat on it. And while Aaron and Hur held up his hands on one and the other side, and the other on the other side. And so his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. And then the Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial and a book, and recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. 
And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is my banner, saying, The hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. And this is the word of the Lord, and may his Holy Spirit move in our hearts to hear and to see his holy, inspired, and inerrant word for his glory and our joy. Amen. The Lord God has already saved Israel. It is very important that we remember that, that we understand that in context here. Israel was enslaved in Egypt for hundreds of years. God raised up Moses to be their deliverer, their rescuer, their their savior in a sense. And as we see in the the overwhelming theme that we see in that narrative of God saving his people out of Egypt is that it was God alone who accomplished it. It was not by the will of Israel or by the power and might of Moses, nor by the will of Pharaoh himself but by the will and power and the outstretched hand of God. It's very important that we understand that it is God alone that accomplishes the salvation of his people. And that parallels, as we understand, to the gospel. That God sent another, Jesus, a better Moses, to save us out of our bondage of sin and death by taking our place on the cross. He has saved us by grace alone. And now everything after that salvation, we see the Lord teaching now his people. God saves his people for his glory and for his people to glorify him, then we must understand, they must understand what it means to glorify God, how to glorify God. And so God, what he does in this wilderness there is not only testing them to show them how to glorify him, how to be obedient, but he is showing more to them of himself. This is who I am at Mara. I showed you that I am the Lord who heals. In the wilderness of sin, he, he showed them that he is their provider and their rest. At Rephidim, he he showed them already that he is what? The rock of their salvation. And so the Lord is showing his people that in all of life, I am your salvation. I am your justification. I am your sanctification. And I am your glorification. The process is him alone. The Lord has saved them for his glory, that they would be a people that glorify him. He has saved us for his glory, and our lives are for his glory. And so like we've been talking about over the last couple weeks, is that even though we may have been, we've been saved... We understand that. We understand grace alone. We understand mercy. We understand Christ alone and, and salvation. We understand that it, is Christ, that it is God who has accomplished that. All that I've just said, we understand that. It's, it's in our name. It's in our, it's in our creed. It's in what we believe. It's what we confess. It's what we proclaim. It's what we, we sing about. We, we, we know this. But what we understand in this wilderness narrative, that even though God is showing them over and over again, that he is their salvation, that God is leading his people sovereignly, providentially leading them into the desert, into these particular difficulties and struggles and trials and hardships and pain and suffering and loss. And when we go through those particular things, when we are brought through those things by God's sovereign hand, it is not hard to figure out that we live in a fallen world and that even in this whole Christian life, this Christian thing, this by the Spirit of God and even with the Word of God, that it is difficult, that it is hard. It doesn't take long to figure that out. Living in a fallen world 
is hard. Much less the difficulty that we make it. But the fallen world around us, the pressures of the world around us, the events, the news, the things that we hear, the things that we see of the evil and the wickedness, it's difficult to live in a fallen world. And what we understand from the scripture and what we are taught by God's word is that as Christians, we are a part of this great war and battle that rages around us. And we are often drawn in it to our drawn in and we are attacked. There are enemies. There is a real war that is waging of good versus evil. And by the way, culture has clearly tapped into that. Look at the great stories that come amongst us of good versus evil. And so the question is, like before, where do we turn? We know God has saved us, but how do we do this? How do we fight? How do we endure this this battle? Is there really any hope for God's people? Is there hope for small, seemingly insignificant, marginalized churches? And the lesson that we gain from this from these verses, I think, today, from this sudden, deliberate, and unprovoked attack upon Israel, is that we would learn three very important things as Christians. And that is, number one, there is a clear and present danger. There is an enemy. And number two, we are in a battle. And in that battle, the Lord has told us and shown us and taught us how to fight. And number three, the Lord is our banner. And so point one, there is an enemy. There is a clear and present danger. There is an enemy that is spiritual and even takes form physically. The first thing that we need to say before we talk about our enemies or the enemy is we need to acknowledge our first enemies. And the first enemy that we face and our greatest enemy that we face is not external. It is not the Amalekites. The first enemy of Israel was not the Amalekites. It was not the Egyptians. But their first enemy is just like our first enemy, and that is the enemy that is within. And so from the beginning of Exodus, we've seen the struggle and the war that takes place, the battle within the people of Israel, and it is this battle that is waged within every human heart. Just recently, we saw that in the grumbling at Marah in the wilderness of sin, and at Massah, their disobedience in, their, in the wilderness. We have identified it primarily because of their unbelief, which is a problem at the heart. They have a heart problem. They did not look to God because they did not trust in the Lord. And yes, these are big problems that they dealt with. Not having water in the desert, not having food in the desert. That is, those are big problems, and they can have massive consequences for thousands of people. We understand that, and yet their unbelief is what shines through. Their response is what shows that their unbelief shows that their, shows their real need, their biggest problem. The greatest problem is their unbelief. 
And the testing that God was doing was to expose their hearts and to show them that first and foremost they are to have faith in the Lord. And we see the same lesson in today's passage. The Lord will save his people from the attack of their enemies. He is abundantly able to save them as he has been able to abundantly provide for them. And so the overall lesson in the wilderness narrative continues, right? So trust, so believe, look to the Lord and and, and worship him. Because you first have to overcome your first enemy, and that is within you. Our greatest enemy, my greatest enemy, your greatest enemy is not someone else. It is not the wicked. It is not the world. It is my flesh. And it is your flesh. There has never been, there has never been anyone who has ever lied or deceived to you, deceived you more than you. And the word of God shows us that over and over and over again. And therefore, the necessity of the transformational work of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That it's not about external conformity, but it is what the Spirit does to regenerate us. That we may have faith to believe and to follow Him, Jesus Christ, in obedience. And so now that we got that straight, we understand, right, with that perspective, the perspective of looking now at the enemies on the outside, we understand our, our own greatest enemies, ourselves, and that shows us then how to be compassionate and kind and loving and all of those things. And if it wasn't for the grace of God, then so would I be. And so looking at verse 8, we see that this is the first military battle or fighting that Israel faces on their long campaign to take the promised land. And so maybe the great stirring question in your mind this morning as we read the text is, who are the Amalekites? Who are the Amalekites? Well, the Amalekites were a nomadic tribe of the northern Sinai Peninsula. And according to uh, Romans, according to Numbers 24, they were one of the first people groups to organize together as a tribe. They were descendants of Esau, Genesis 36. And so this opposition started, so if you're kind of putting it together now, the opposition between Israel and the Amalekites really started back with Jacob and Esau. Jacob becoming Israel, and now all of his descendants are God's people. Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. The hostilities between them wasn't just in their past, but we see it's now present in uh, Exodus 17. But as we see throughout Uh, salvation history, quite much of the Old Testament, the Amalekites will continually be hostile to Israel in the future. And just a a year later, they will attack Israel at Hormah, which, by the way, we read from Numbers 14. That was the attack that they were afraid of. They were afraid of the Amalekites, which makes the Amalekites partly responsible for Israel being disciplined to wander in the desert for 40 years for their disobedience to obey God, to trust that the Lord is with them. Even when Israel gets to the land, into the promised land, the Amalekites are still around to oppose them over and over again. In the book of Judges, we see Gideon defeats them. David and Saul will face the Amalekites in 1 Samuel 15, 27, and 30, in 2 Samuel chapter 8. It's not until King Hezekiah in 1 Chronicles chapter 4 that Israel completely defeats militarily the Amalekites, thus fulfilling what we read in verse 14 and verse 16. Even Esther, y'all remember Esther? Esther's enemy was Haman. And Haman was named Haman the Agite who was named after Agag, the Amalekite king, who Agag was killed by Samuel, 
What has been discovered about the Amalekites and some of the few things that we know about the Amalekites is how they survived in the desert is, was by domesticating camels and then using them to plunder and attack other people, which is exactly what we read here about that happens to Israel minus anything about the text saying anything about camels. We don't know exactly why the Amalekites would unprovokedly strike and attack Israel. Maybe it was to plunder them. Maybe it was because of fear. Maybe it was over water or territory or whatever it may be. We just know that the Amalekites attacked them. But later, Moses tells us a little bit more about that attack. In Deuteronomy chapter 25, Moses tells the people this. He's been recalling this event. He says in verse 17, he says, Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt. How he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary. And they were faint and weary. Why? Because they were struggling finding water and food and they were grumbling and complaining against the Lord. They had been in the desert for such a long time. They were still just slaves. They were not necessarily a complete organized nation and people yet. They didn't have an army necessarily yet. He goes on to say, and what did they do? And they cut off your tail. Those who were lagging behind you. And he did not fear God. So listen to how that assault happened. This wasn't a full frontal attack. You know, the challenging of one army to the next army. This was an attack of terror upon the people of Israel at the back of their line. To those who are at the back, this was, this was not a just war for a just cause it was a sneak attack upon the defenseless, probably the elderly, women and children, the vulnerable. The attack came as Israel was weak, as we were saying. They were physically weak. They were emotionally weak. They were spiritually weak. They were former slaves just trying to make it across the wilderness one day at a time. It could not have come at a worse time to be attacked. But did you hear how Moses described the Amalekites? They were those who did not fear God. The central trait of the enemies of the gospel, the central trait of those whom would seek to subvert the kingdom of God is that they do not fear God. We've heard the line, I'm sure of it, that if you do not know history, then you are doomed to repeat it. That history repeats itself. Well, brothers and sisters, very rarely does history repeat itself. But I will tell you that history rhymes. It rhymes. It sounds a lot like what happens earlier. And doesn't this story, in the way that I just described, in the way that Moses just described, sound very, very familiar? Doesn't it rhyme with a similar event that has taken place just over a month ago? With the attack upon the people of southern Israel. I haven't spoken to you all about this event yet, and so I'm pretty sure that you, you already know all about it. I'm sure you've heard of the atrocities and the barbaric attack on that Saturday morning by the Hamas terrorist group, and let it be said, and let it be known that they had one goal, and that was to kill as many people as they could indiscriminately. It wasn't a war necessarily on religious grounds or apartheid or any of that colonization garbage, which is not true. It was about genocide. This was an evil and wicked attack for which there is no justification. And I say it very clearly 
with very clear moral words that it was evil and that it was wicked. With moral clarity, because according to God's word, we know what is evil. And we know what is wicked. And for the nation of Israel to not respond decisively and bring about the swift justice upon that organization, frankly, to utterly destroy Hamas would be immoral on their part. It would be immoral to do so, to do not so. Real evil, brothers and sisters, exists in our world today. And with events like this and other things that we've seen, even in our own country, the people, the world, has no concept, no categories of what evil. They say evil. Our politicians say evil, but they have no concept, no category of what evil is. Brothers and sisters, we do. We have God's word has told us what is evil. And therefore, we must be very clear on what is evil. And we must never vacillate on that point. The highest of all of good is the Lord our God. And he has told us fundamentally what is good and what is righteous. Good and evil is not determined by man's feelings. It is not determined by culture. It is not determined upon the signs of the times and what people want. It has been clearly laid out to us in God's word. There is no question about that. And to those that do, clearly do not have the mindset of the word of God. We could spend the rest of the day talking about all the various ways that evil still exists in this world. Even the own wickedness of our own hearts. But what it comes down to this is this, again, is this very important point that there is an evil that exists and that evil that exists is there to destroy and derail the sovereign plan of God. It hates righteousness. And the reason why is not only they do not fear God, but they hate God. We see it first in the garden with the serpent. Satan, the evil one, comes into the garden and he tempts Eve to disobey the word of God and thus entered into the world, sin at the fall. And here this great battle begins or continues with the seed of the woman versus the seed of the serpent. There we see in God's word in the pronouncement of the curse in Genesis chapter 3. The seed of the woman versus the seed of the serpent. We have been talking about this theme throughout Exodus. And we see that war continue to rage and it just even in the next chapter between Cain and Abel brothers. As Cain kills his brother. We see it in Egypt as the serpent enslaves the people of God, the, the seed of the woman. And then now here in chapter 17, the Amalekites, the serpent, attacks the people of God, the seed of the woman. And this theme continues throughout salvation history, where it culminates. It, 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 it's the pinnacle of this theme happens at the cross, where Jesus Christ, the, the seed of the woman, crushes the seed of the serpent, crushes the head of the serpent. But that theme still continues today as we are still in this in-between period of the kingdom of God as it will surely soon be fulfilled. And that theme continues today in our world of the seed of the serpent versus the seed of the woman. And when I say world, I do not mean creation. I do not mean the trees, the rocks, the air, the water, the animals. Though affected by the fall, the world is anything that anyone, anything and anyone that is used to oppose the righteousness, goodness, and the kingdom of God. The evil systems in our world. It could be governments, it could be people, it could be organizations, 
It could be thoughts. It could be philosophies. It could be a host and a number of things. But this is why we are told, Christians, brothers and sisters, this is why we are told in 1 John chapter 3, verse 12, that we should not be like Cain. Cain, who went the, the line of the seed of the serpent, who was evil and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. You see that? Evil versus righteous. Verse 13, do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. I mean, did you, did you hear that? Do not be surprised that the world hates you. Let that sink in. Even though Exodus 17 seems to be this small tribal conflict, right? A little skirmish in the desert. But we see that it, we understand that there's more there. Because what it's doing, it really shows us the same battle that has raged since the fall. And it's the same battle that rages today. I'll give you a clear distinction of this battle that you can see today. And I think I said it last week, and I'll say it again this week, is that the seed of the serpent hates life. The seed of the serpent wants to see death. Wants to see destruction. Wants to see the world burn. And today, that pervasive attitude, we see it as a cult of death. And just this past week, the state of Ohio amended their constitution to allow unrestricted abortion in their state. And this wasn't an activist judge. This wasn't a, a liberal legislature or governor that did so. But they did this by direct democracy, a vote, which I think is stupid and foolish. That's why our founders didn't give us a direct democracy, because it's basically tyranny by the masses. But the people of the state of Ohio voted to legalize abortion on demand. Other states as well this past week had referendums one way or another on abortion. In many ways, the, the Democrat Party made that the referendum, made that the center of the debate on almost every election. And guess what, brothers and sisters? Almost every case, every election that was cast, life lost. Do not be surprised that the world does not fear God, but loves evil, and that it hates us. In Canada, euthanasia is now on demand, and now even up to children at the age of 12 years old can request the state to put them to death. Violence, oppression, tyranny all over the world is on the rise. We just talked about how the Jewish people have been on attack and attacked, and the, the, the intent was to kill as many people as possible. And yet, what do we see of the most of the world and the protests around is that they're sympathetic with the terrorists. And essentially, in their chance and their calling is for the genocide, once again, the rhyme of history, the genocide of the Jews. I've heard, I heard this argument, that if Hamas laid their arms down today, Israel would arrest them and try them. If Israel laid down their arms, they would be decimated. Christians are still being persecuted around the world. The church is still being persecuted. This has always been happening. And all of this, again, is this cult of death. We see pervasive in culture around us, again, the mutilation of children offered as sacrifices to the gods of the LGBTQ revolutionaries to castrate and sterilize perfectly healthy children. That is a hatred of life. 
to stop life before it even can be conceived, to stop life before it can have the conception of being able to conceive. The seed of the serpent hates life. And will do anything it can to stop the kingdom of God. And the good news of the gospel, what is essential of what we preach? Yes, we are preaching that there is death, right? That there is death and sin. That sin brings death. There will be a judgment. But essentially in the gospel we are saying it gives life. Do you see the cataclysmic difference between the two? We are proclaiming life. The one who has received death is Christ. Don't go there. You don't have to die. He died so that we may live. You see the massive difference between the the death cult of our world and the life of the gospel that we preach. We always wonder the difference between what Jesus was saying of light and darkness, how stark it is. That's stark. Our message is vastly different than the death cult around us. And brothers and sisters, and I'm going to get there, but there's hope. I'm not pre- I don't, please don't preach. I'm preaching to you like this. There's hopelessness here. There's hope. Man, the gospel is still saving people. Still share the gospel. Still proclaim the gospel. Even one who is entrenched in these worldly ideas, share the gospel with them, pray. As long as there is life, there is still hope. Always hope. That's why I hate abortion so much. Because there's always hope. I don't care how bad the situation is. It doesn't matter how bad it is. There's always hope. I don't care about the circumstances. With life, there's always hope. Because Christ is on his throne. That's why there's hope. I am way off my text, but... But hear the good news of the life that is proclaimed in our, in our message. Evil exists. It's real. There is an enemy. And they're going to continue to attack. They're going to continue to move forward and oppress and attack our lines and attack the backside and the tail and the weak and the vulnerable. They're always going to attack. They're going to attack us spiritually. They're going to attack us physically. There is a battle that is raging around us. Ephesians 6, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers and against their authorities and the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So then, so then what do we understand? What do we see that even though there is an enemy, there is a, a world that is against us, we understand that this war, this battle is what? It is spiritual. And the weapons that we take up are not weapons necessarily of this world but we take up the weapons and the armor of which God has given to us and second point is we are we're in this battle we have this enemy but the Lord has showed us how to fight we are in this battle we're in this spiritual battle Exodus 17 yes it's a physical battle but don't miss the fact that it was also spiritual Right, the seed of the serpent versus the seed of the, the seed of the woman. Right, in verse nine, we're introduced to the Joshua. We'll talk more about Joshua uh, later. Moses tells him to choose his army to go out and fight the Amalekites. And something quite interesting happens here. Right, this is the this is the first time that Israel is commanded to take an active role in their own defense at the Red Sea. What is what does the Lord tell Moses to tell Israel to do? Hey, just just stop right here for a second and watch what I'm going to do. He tells them to sit and, to, and to, to wait and see what the Lord does and that he gives them salvation. But now here at, at Rephraim, where after God has saved them, right, they are told to appoint an army and go and defend themselves. And so we understand here that in our battles, in our fights, there is a passive element of faith. We understand that. There's a passive element of faith, of trusting in the Lord. We look upon him. We are depending upon him. We are resting in him. Our rest is in him. We understand, we believe, we trust in the sovereignty of God, knowing that all things work together for good for those who are called according to his name and for his purposes. Amen. Right? We rest in that. 
And even if those purposes are the good or for bad, we understand we can trust in the Lord. And yet we also see here from Exodus 17 that we exercise our faith. That faith is also active. There's an element here of faith to be obedient, to be courageous, to stand in the face of evil, to get up and to walk, to sit, stand, go and resist and to fight. And the battle that we are facing today for us, I don't care necessarily about people behind us, but we care about our people now. I care about you. The battle that we face today and the battle we will face in the future cannot be all passive. It cannot be the ideology of let go and let God or Jesus take the wheel. That is not our theology. Nor can we be all active. We cannot be like Peter, taking up our swords and cutting off ears. We are to be ready. We are to be watchmen on the tower, always on guard. We're not paranoid. Understand that the world hates you. We understand. You're only paranoid in what you don't understand. We understand that. But trusting in the Lord because we know that he is sovereign. And in his sovereignty and in his providence, we exercise active, faithful obedience to fight. And when we see in verse 10, they get into all their positions. Joshua takes his army to the battle, and Moses goes on a hill with Aaron. And this other guy named Hur, which, by the way, Hur is the the grandfather to the, uh, to this, I believe, the skilled worker who, who, uh, who leads in the construction, the building of the, the tent, the tabernacle. I think his name is Beeziel. And Joshua is to go and to engage the army. Right? And we see that, right? Go, he goes and fights. But you see that the emphasis of the passage is not about necessarily the battle itself, what Joshua goes and does and all the different tactics and things like that. He does, there's not this normal approach to describe the battle. There's not a, the tactics of two armies and flanking movements. And, and, and even this, their leader, their leader, Moses isn't even on the battlefield. Moses is not even on the battlefield. He's not the warrior that wins the day. He stands on a hill. And he stands there on the hill with his, with his rod raised in the air. When his arms were up with the rod in the air, the, and the rod was high in the air, we, we see here that Israel's army had the upper hand, and they were winning the battle. But when Moses got tired, and his arms fell, the Amalekites would have gained the advantage. Some of us might be asking, why can't Moses hold his arms up long enough? Well, battles didn't, were a little bit longer than the scenes of like Braveheart. Longer than 10, 15 minutes, Okay. So he had to hold his arms up probably almost all day. Moses got tired, and Malachites would take the advantage. And there's been a lot of people who have said lots of things about this particular event and what it means. And, and one in particular I think makes sense and, and sort of could be applicable to us is that it speaks to the necessity of prayer. Moses is on the hill. He's, he's standing, and he's holding his, his hands up. And they would say that it's representation of prayer. And certainly the only way to win the battle is through prayer. And now certainly we would, we would say amen, that is true. And for our spiritual success and spiritual warfare, our battle against the world, against the flesh and sin, for the advancement of the gospel against the evil one is, is not won or lost based upon our skills with the sword or on the battlefield, but on our knees in prayer. We understand that. Because this is a spiritual battle that we face. We take up the full armor of God, and yet the armor comes, as we see in Ephesians 6, verse 18. It comes through prayer, praying at all times, what? In the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for the saints. We see how prayer brings it all together in, in being ready and prepared and to be able to persevere. And of course, there's a simple lesson here. If we do not pray, we'll lose the battle. So pray, pray always, pray, discipline yourselves to pray. That's a wonderful lesson that we certainly can gain, but however, I, 
I don't think that's the main lesson and the main point of this passage. Absolutely, the right theology. It's the right theology, but I don't think this is the right text. I think this is the the wrong text for that teaching. It's not what Moses is doing, I think, is what's important. I think what's important is what's represented again, as we talked about last week, in what he is holding up. Because that's what links us back to last week, is that he took the rod and he struck the rock. And the rod that he struck the rock is the same rod that now that Moses is, is holding up, and, now, and, when, and when he's holding up, and when he's holding that rod up, what's happening? Israel is winning. That's good. That's what we want to see. That's what Israel wants to see. But when the rod is held down, Israel is, is losing. And so I think the focus is on the rod. And again, remember what, what that is a symbol of, right? We talked about last week, it's a symbol of, of God's judgment, but also his power and his presence. So judgment, power, and presence. When he, is, when he is holding that rod up, what is happening? It's a sign of the Lord that he is bringing his judgment upon the Amalekites. He's displaying his power through Israel upon the Amalekites. And he's showing that the, pre- that the presence of God is with his people. And when that rod is down low, it's doing the opposite of those things. Given the odds of this battle, and given the morale and the state of Israel and their skill, their condition, I don't think Israel really had a shot here, did they? I don't think they had a shot in winning. And if that's the case, then despair would set in. If it was just them who was making war then they would have no chance. And we understand that, brothers and sisters, that as the church, we are small. We have little influence. We have, we have, uh, we're, we're tired. We're weary. These days can be long. This pilgrimage is long. We are susceptible to attack. And yet we understand that without the power of God, we too would succumb to the world and to the battle that rages around us. On the other hand, they could also be tempted to believe that the reason for their victory is what? Is their skill. Is their ability to fight. But the rod going up was showing them that the Lord was with them. And when the rod went down, what did it show them? That they needed the Lord. not far off from our own pride, is that we can believe that even in our battles and in our victories that they belong to us. And so I think this whole event, the whole battle description and the rod going up and the rod going down is describing for us to show us that, and to show them that you did not do this, the Lord did. That he is the one who fights for us. That he is the one who gives the victory. He is the one who fights. He is our power in the battle against the enemies we face. If the battle we face and the war that is raging around us, if this spiritual battle that the scripture tells us that we are in is in such a way and we understand it and we see it around us, then how could we ever think that we could win ourselves? That we could conquer such an enemy. I cannot win on my own. But ah, what do we see in Exodus 17? We see the pattern that the battle belongs to the Lord. You are weak. I am weak. I am faint. I am tired. Moral Morale can be often low, but it is God's power and his strength that we depend on. How do we fight? In the power of the Lord. In this battle when the, that rages around us, we, we look to the Lord that it is him who fights for us. And you can even see in the weakness of Moses, right? Not even being able to stand up. He's showing the fragility of man. He's showing how fragile that he really is. If Moses can't do it. I mean, think about that. If Moses can't do it, then who can? In the battles that we face against the enemies, we must realize that. 
That yes, we have this armor. We have what God has given us. We must be humble and acknowledge that in our own weaknesses and strength and power, we are unable to stand. Our enemy, the evil one, has been doing this a whole lot longer than you have. And he is far better at it than you. And he's far better at it than me. But where we are weak, Jesus is strong. The Lord has fought the battle. He was their strength. And, and you all know I could not miss this point, right? When, when Moses is weak, what, what, what surrounds him? His brothers surround him, doesn't it? Here's Aaron and here's, here's her and they put a, they put a rock underneath him for him to sit on and then they hold up his arms. Boy, doesn't that show us something. That we are meant to face, uh, that we are not meant to face this enemy alone, do we? That as the army of God, we face the enemies together. The battle belongs to the Lord, but we face them together. We uphold one another. And as verse 13 tells us, the victory belongs to the Lord. The Lord has showed us, brothers and sisters, how we are to fight. And that is complete dependence upon him. And that gives us rest. That gives us peace. That keeps us from raging in the streets. That keeps us, as we, we hear in the teachings in the New Testament, that we are to be people who who live peaceably among the land as much as you can. Because we trust in, in the sovereignty of God. And that if it is a battle that needs to be faced, that he will fight it for us. And that if we are to stand, then he will give us the strength to stand. And when we stand, we will stand together. In the battles that may be spiritual and physical, we rely upon the strength of the God. And we put on the belts of truth. The truth of God's word. We put on the breastplate of righteousness. The righteousness of Christ. Not a righteousness that you earn, not a righteousness that you have gained, but the righteousness that Christ has imputed upon you because he took your wickedness and he gives us his righteousness. We put on the shoes of the readiness of the gospel of peace. We're not going to be the ones who start the wars and the battles and the fights. We are people of peace. But if needs be, dress for action like a man. Stand the ground. Stand on the wall. Act like men. And we take up the shield of faith because we believe. We believe that there is no weapon formed against us shall prosper. We take up the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit. And the last point as we close, I want to tell you about this, is that the Lord is our banner. And we see that in verses 14 through 16. In the last three verses, we see this. We see first that the Lord tells Moses to write it down. The others need to know. Joshua needs to know, right? Will come upon the what will come upon the Amalekites. Second, Moses is to respond to, by building an altar, an altar to remember, not an altar of sacrifice, but an altar of remembrance, a remembering of what? Of the power of God, the judgment of God, and the presence of God. And third, the call to remember. And I think what we have described here. And this whole event is not only the protection of God's people, but in this, as we see, is the judgment of God upon the nations. It starts with Egypt, and we see now it go to the Amalekites. The Amalekites were evil. They were idolatrous. They were wicked. They did not fear God. They 
showed that they did not fear God by viciously attacking Israel. And this is why Moses tells them to write it as a memorial, because here is the beginning of more judgment that is to come that will be poured out onto the land as the Lord will use his people, Israel, to judge the wicked people of the land. And yet this is also the point, I think, to us, a point that there will be judgment to come, that God, in his righteousness and in his holiness, he judges the enemies of God. As it is written, the wicked, the evil, the depraved, everyone who has rejected Jesus Christ, has rejected the gospel, has hated the gospel, has rebelled against the Lord, they will be judged. And as we see in verse 13, there they will be overwhelmingly destroyed by God. To all of those who hate life, to the death cult and the evil systems of this world, they will be judged and they will be destroyed like the Amalekites and they will burn. In the fires of the holiness of God's judgments, Though the nations rage against the righteousness of God, the final victory is secured. The battle is won. The battle is won. And there then is this truth that is built within us as we understand as the people of God that judgment will come, that God will judge the wicked and the unrighteous and the evil that is around us and even the evil one. That builds within us a confidence, right? A confidence in not only the sovereignty of God, but a confidence that we shall endure and that there will be better things to come. Because one day, whatever may comes upon us, the righteous judge will come and he will make it right. And so Moses, at that altar that he builds, he calls it the Lord is our banner. A banner is a standard, a flag. It's like a rod being held, lifted high. what a soldiers would look, like, look at for a rallying point. It would be to inspire the, the soldiers to continue to face the battle and to stay on the line and to resist and to fight. The banner is not Joshua. The banner is not Moses. The banner is not the army of God. The banner is the Lord himself. Brothers and sisters, the banner, our banner, is the Lord. The Lord is our banner. And as his church, Jesus Christ is our rallying point. He is our standard. Because Christ is our victory. The victory was not won at Rephaim, but the victory was won at the cross. Where Jesus ascended that hill, and he did not sit, but he was hung on a cross, a hill of judgment. And with his hands outstretched, he took our judgment. Moses held, held the wrath of or the judgment of God was dispensing it upon the Amalekites. But Jesus spread his arms out to receive the judgment of God so that we could be liberated from our enemy, right? Not the enemies of the world, but the enemies that were within, right? Our primary enemy of sin and death. The Lord Jesus Christ is our banner and all who rally around him in faith from every tribe, from every nation, from every tongue shall be saved. And at the cross, brothers and sisters, we are unified together. We are encouraged, we are instructed, and we remember that it is not by our strength by which we live or which we survive or by which we fight, but it is his.
And we remember as we look to that banner. We, we look to that banner, not looking back at Exodus 17. But we look forward to Revelation 19 and 20. When the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords will come again. And he will finish this war that was started in the garden once and for all. And when he comes, peace will reign. All things will be restored and made new. Sin will be gone. Death will be conquered. And all of God's people will be renewed. But until that day, remember who is our victory. When the enemies rage, when the world rages, the enemy is real. God has told us how to fight. But until that day, until that day when Christ comes, remember who is our victory. Remember who is our power, who is our strength. It is Jesus Christ. So brothers and sisters, church, as we stand together and even fight together, look to him, remember him, and trust in him. And all of God's people say,